Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's virtual program at the Commonwealth Club of California. My name is Shara Frankel. I'm a technology reporter for the New York Times and co-author of An Ugly Truth, Inside Facebook's Battle for Domination. And I'm excited to be here today, moderating today's program. I'm pleased to be joined by Senator Amy Klobuchar, senior senator from the state of Minnesota and author of the book Antitrust, Taking on Monopoly Power from the Gilded Age to the Digital Age. We live in a time of enormous income inequality, and many, including Senator Klobuchar, believe that now is the time to take action against our modern monopolies. She wrote Antitrust to help give Americans a comprehensive view of how monopolies have changed over the years and how the government has adopted in response. We'll be discussing a lot in the next hour, and I want to ask your questions, too. If you're watching along with us, please put your questions in the text chat on YouTube, and we'll be getting to them later in the program. Thank you, Senator Klobuchar, for joining us. Well, thanks, Sheila. It's great to be on. I, I, I noticed you kind of see I've done like bad Zoom hygiene. You see my the window reflected, but you're also going to see it going dark in Minnesota, and then you you won't see it. So such is life. And I'm really excited to be on with you. Uh, and um, uh, read your book, every single word of it. So thank you for that. Um, and looking forward to talking about this. It literally couldn't be more timely. I've done a lot of book talks, but none at this critical time. So thanks for uh, moderating. Well, it's my pleasure. And I'm actually going to start by asking you a very leading question, given what you just said, which is why is now an exciting time for your paperback to be coming out? Um, well, uh, because uh, this is a moment where we're finally starting to see some momentum. And part of it uh, uh, has to do with the fact that this has just been going on for too long. When we got a bill recently, last Thursday, through the Judiciary Committee, uh, we were literally able to call it the first bill, competition, antitrust bill, tech bill, to pass through the Judiciary Committee to the Senate floor since the dawn of the Internet. A bit overly dramatic, uh, but that is in fact the case. And then you had everything from the Facebook whistleblower uh, to just increasing bipartisan support, the administration taking this on with the competition summit, and the clear problem that with our conservative courts, basically making it harder and harder as each year goes by to bring cases and enforce the laws um, with no changes in Congress, a huge lobbying effort. It was just revealed last week that the tech companies alone spent $70 million last year uh, lobbying against, and that doesn't even include the ad campaigns, lobbying against our legislation and similar legislation. Um, and then you also have um, just a lot of people that don't like to get involved in controversy. One of the things I've noticed is Congress seems to be able to react when there's an immediate crisis, right? A hurricane, a flood, a financial crisis, right? We reacted with TARP and, um, and, and a pandemic. We can, you know, get the funding out. I'm not kidding. It is stuff that is immediate. And then these longer term problems like climate change or immigration reform or tech policy um, seems to be very, very difficult. Voting, not to be you know, appropriate for last week, uh, very difficult uh, for people to come to yes, especially with 60 votes. So I'm very proud of our bipartisan support um, and the way our group, which Samantha B called the Ocean's 11 of co-sponsors, uh, have been able to stick together and not waver uh, when it came to uh, getting a bill done. 
So I think one of the things your book does really well is give a comprehensive history of this, of why antitrust is so difficult. And what are the historic problems here? I, I know it's really difficult to, to try and summarize what took whole chapters into just a couple minutes. Yes. But, um, but give people some of that sense, because I don't think people realize what a long and sort of fascinating history antitrust has in America. Right. And by the way, that makes my work right now. I can put it in perspective because some of the senators, even at the hearing that go, you know, this is going to be really ugly using the word from your book. And I'm like, uh, you think I wasn't ready for that? Look at history. Um, you know, you go way back to the um, start of our country, uh, where some of the founding fathers actually wanted to put stuff in here about monopolies. And monopolies were a mo motivating force, even though the word didn't end up in the Constitution. Um, very big, um, very big force that literally people came from England to our country because they were entrepreneurs and they didn't want to sell all their stuff, by the way, including their including tea purchases uh, to a monopolies. And even the Boston Tea Party wasn't just about taxation without representation. It was also about the fact that they had to deal with the monopoly tea party in the East Indies Tea, tea Company. So then at one point uh, they said, well, don't worry, the public will take care of this. We don't have to put this in the Constitution. And it took 100 years. Uh, but as these trusts started developing and things got worse and worse, that is when, uh, first of all, Senator Sherman, uh, brother of General Sherman marched to the sea and friend of Lincoln uh, got involved. And it's also around the time you see this driving movement, which led to Teddy Roosevelt after Democrats and Republicans started decrying the trust. State legislatures got into the act, by the way, history repeating itself, right, Shira, because you see that happening right now. And they have limited powers, but they start passing stuff. And pretty soon the companies go, oh, whoa, whoa, we have this patchwork of laws, privacy laws, whatever. Uh, maybe we need a federal law. Maybe we were wrong. Um, and so over time, Roosevelt comes in, he starts busting the trusts, you know, whether it's Standard Oil, which was actually completed by uh, President Wilson, or, or whether it is financial trusts or whether it's rail trusts, and he starts bringing actions. That continues during the progressive era. Um, but then after that, um, with, with um, many, for many other reasons, it kind of drops off for a while, picks up again with the AT&T suit, and that's kind of the heyday. And then you get to the present where really for the last like 40 years, nothing has happened, which happens to coincide uh, with the uh, internet. And there just has not been any laws passed to get at the problems of our time, whereas in the past, you know, Sherman Act passed, then Clayton Act passed. Things happened about every 20 years or so, and that's just not happening right now. So that's led to a lot of the consolidation because, as Bill Baer, the former head of antitrust under Obama, once said, you know, there's deals coming before us that shouldn't be even getting out of the boardroom um, because companies are going to test it. Uh, that's what they do. And if there's no if there's no pushback, uh, as Adam Smith said, and I think everyone thinks of him as, you know, godfather of capitalism, invisible hand. But he also said the one thing we must fear is the unbridled power of the standing army of monopolies. And and also in the book, I point out some fun stuff. I have over 100 cartoons for people that like cartoons. Uh, I also have stories like the woman who invented the Monopoly game and how she got, you know, shoved aside for a guy. The only time in history, Shira, where a man took credit for a woman's work. 
Okay. Um, or the story of uh, Ida Tarbell, the woman who um, who uncovered uh, the Standard Oil um, Trust and what had happened there um, and the difference that she and other muck, muckrakers made. Um, there's a lot of women in the background of all of this. Um, and so I tell a lot of the interesting stories about um, cases and, and what, us, what got us to today. See, that was a pretty quick soundbite for a second. It was better than I would have done if someone asked me to summarize my book. Um, I think that when people think about all this, you know, you just mentioned the idea of tech and the big tech firms that have emerged just in the last couple of decades, really. What we're really talking about are companies like Google and Facebook and Amazon and Apple. And I think one thing your book did really well was draw home how this affects the consumer, how this affects people at home who depend on companies like Facebook and Google and Amazon, which have really become part of the infrastructure of America and how we live our lives today. I, I was wondering if you could get a little bit more into why the lack of any kind of uh, updated antitrust regulation has affected sort of the modern day American consumer. Sure. And let me go start with non-tech stuff. Um, in some areas, and I think one of the best examples for me is pharma, um, where you have cases, and this first came to my attention um, when I had just gotten to the Senate and I got a call um, from one of our, our children's hospitals. And, um, and I found out uh, that this baby's heart drug called indomethacin, which had always been competitively priced and was affordable, um, had completely shot up, um, like, like up to like $1,600, $1,800 from where it was. And, um, and it was costing consumers and families, but also the hospitals if the families couldn't afford it, for a common drug that had a competitor. Well, it turns out that the company that had the competitor, they both basically both been sold to the same company. Uh, and I remember holding up the vial of the indomethacin as a new senator. I'm brand new. What should I do to the FTC? FTC ends up bringing a case, conservative Eighth circuit, which defied a lot of experts' beliefs about how this should have gone, uh, up, um, and upholds a, um, a Republican appointee's decision. And basically they say, sorry, can't do anything about it. Um, and that was unbelievable to me. And you didn't have a competitor emerge for years and years. You saw the same thing basically with EpiPen um, more recently. Um, and I care about this. My daughter carries one of them. Um, and all the moms, of course, of the world immediately and dads knew exactly what I was talking about. Again, there was lack of competition because things that had happened with the alternatives. So they just jack up the price. So in the end, uh, I first saw this as a consumer issue and then quickly realized it's antitrust. Outside of the prices going up for things, you have other concerns that are much more insidious. Um, and that is everything from probably positive example, AT&T breakup, right? Everyone thought, well, AT&T is fine. This is all going okay. I got my old phone. I got this. When the cell phones were the size of Gordon Gecko's briefcase in the movie Wall Street. And then suddenly after the breakup, people realized, wait a minute, my long distance rates can go down. Yes. But, oh, there's all these new innovations in the cell phone market. So I bring up that innovation point because sometimes you just think, okay, what I got is okay. 
day and you don't realize innovations that can actually make your life better. Like maybe if Facebook hadn't bought Instagram and WhatsApp, uh, they would have eventually responded to the market demands for better privacy, for better um, protections for kids and the like. And you don't know that because they bought them. Because in the words of Mark Zuckerberg, I'd rather buy than compete. Those were his words in an email. Um, so um, I, I think that one of the things we do is we a lot of times talk about price. That's true. But there are other things that in the long term, big monopolies cut out a lot of innovations and bells and whistles, and especially in the tech area, that would be good for consumers. But the most obvious examples are, you know, online travel, two companies own like 90 percent of it. I think it was John Oliver said that it's everything from cat food to caskets. And he ended his his piece by saying, and if this makes you you want to die, good luck, because there's only three casket makers. And I told him, no, I'm sorry, one bought the other. There's only two. Um, so we're seeing it all across the economy, not just in tech. And, you know, you've obviously been working on this since you were a first time senator. I'm curious how your thinking of what's needed to write our antitrust policies has changed over the course of your career and specifically over the course of writing a book. Because I, I know when you're writing a book, you get to just live in these ideas for months and months at a time. And did the process of doing that and putting together this as a book make you sort of reevaluate how you yourself were thinking about what change we need? Uh, yes, I think my views pretty much stayed the same going back to when I was a young lawyer working. I represented MCI, and this was after the breakup, but they were still um, trying to get in the market against the monopoly local carriers, and it was just an ongoing saga in front of the public utility commissions across the country. So that was my first introduction uh, to this. And so then I saw it as kind of back then, and I wrote about this in the book, but it was more of just these companies fighting each other, right? Then I get to the Senate, and I start seeing the pharma stuff I just told you about. And then, it, to me, it's like all consumer issue. Then, as I keep looking at why this is going wrong, we're so used to maybe the courts stepping in, like at the AT&T case. This isn't happening. Uh, I have Kavanaugh in front of me and the Judiciary Committee. I had Gorsuch in front of me. And when I asked some questions, their views, this was almost like, hey, look at me, when they would write these really, really conservative interpretations of the antitrust law. And it was almost a calling card with the Federalist Society to say, hey, look, I wrote this weird opinion. Now do now I can I make it? I really believe this because some of them were just unnecessary, like one dissent with all the judges. Um, and when I asked some questions about this, it even, you know, made it worse. And that has been borne out, especially with Gorsuch. Kavanaugh had one decision uh, where he actually sided with um, some of the other judges. But for the most part, uh, they are not going to suddenly look at the antitrust laws and say, you know, and I, what bugs me about this so much is that they're supposed to be like, looking at original intent, if you look at their judicial views, if you look at original intent of the Sherman Act, there's no way they would have thought they never knew what the internet would be, but that one company should have 90% of the search market. All right. So the point of all this is that over time, I saw what we were up against. So that over time changed what I saw as some of the solutions, because it was no longer just courts. It was also, well, we need to look at the antitrust laws and start updating them for the times that we live in. We need to get more resources to the agencies big time, uh, because they're dealing with now record mergers, and they've got these big cases against Google and Facebook. Um, and 
Um, we also need to look at things that I've honestly hadn't been willing to look at before, like immunity for the um, for they have a you know they're protected from any lawsuits. Um, and I've started to realize as time goes on, even during the last two years, if they're going to resist every single thing, even bills like mine that say you can't self-preference your stuff and you can't, if, why would they have immunity? And because clearly they're not going to allow for any sensible government regulation. They basically, we can only rely on the private system to police them if they're going to do this. So I'm still not there a hundred percent on a bill like that. I'm still waiting to see <laughs> as, as my dad would always say, um, I would say to him when we were on bike trips across country, I was waiting to see if he would improve uh, before I would take the lead on the bike because then I could draft behind him. So I'm waiting to see if something changes. But so far, it's been, to me, nearly flabbergasting, knowing what uh, we're up against um, and how hard they're lobbying uh, to not put any rules of the road in place. So we're going to get to your bill in a little bit and just the events of the last week. You notice I keep bringing it up. Okay, I'll go. No, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna get there. And back to the book because the book is actually... In the book, I lay out all these solutions, including the bill, right? I have the list of things, a uh, new president that President Biden can do, uh, who you put in place. I have a list of things Congress can do, and I have a list of things the public can do. So I tried to be, it's not just some book of history. I knew what we were coming into. And the other piece I realized looking at history and applying it to modern day is what really made change were these populist movements, right? And they wouldn't all be Democrats by any means, uh, but they were the farmers with the pitchforks and the Granger movement. They were the union activists agitating against monopolies because that uh, pushes down wages. Um, and so I think we're seeing that today. It's not with the pitchforks, right? But there are a lot of farmers complaining about what's going on with um, meatpacking and the like. There are a lot of, um, in, in our today's world, less organized groups, but real sentiment against uh, this kind of consolidation and what's happening with pharma and what's happening with tech. Um, and I think the Facebook whistleblower really turned a key. I mean, when, when, and I know you had, you know, written all of this kind of as a precursor to that, but, you know, one of the moms I talked to um, said that she felt like she trying to learn all this and she basically wants to raise her kids and be a good mom, but they keep being exposed to stuff all the time that she doesn't want them to see. So she keeps trying to put filters on and do all this and then they figure out their way around it or, and then she has to go to her oldest kid to help her to figure out what to do. And she says it feels like a faucet that's on full time in her sink and it's running over and she just has a mop and she keeps trying to clean it up. Um, and I think that's how a lot of parents feel right now. Yeah. And just so to back up for a minute for people who are listening, we're talking about Facebook whistleblower Frances Haugen. She worked at the company for several years. She previously worked at Google. She was an expert on things like how the algorithms, how Facebook's newsfeed feed you certain types of information and how that's been leading to misinformation and hate speech. And I think one of the most interesting things she said that really um, stuck with people was how the company makes a decision. She claims the company makes a decision conscious con um, constantly to keep certain things in the news feed that keep your attention, even knowing that those things might lead you to misinformation or hate speech or other unfortunate things, because it's bottom line is it's profit and it needs to keep you online as much as possible. Um, 
Amy, you know, I, I know people like Mark Zuckerberg disagree heavily with what Francis Haugen had to say, and he is the first person to say, well, I, rel- I welcome regulation, and we want nothing more than regulation. I'm, I'm curious if you could walk us through, in, in the eyes of Mark Zuckerberg, what does regulation look like versus in the eyes of someone like you who's got a bill that you're trying to press through right now? Okay, so... Um, they have made noises that, and this is Facebook, I'm not going to speak for the other companies because I've been on programs following um, some of their spokespeople, spokesmen, and um, they they have said they're open to privacy legislation. And that is, of course, different than antitrust, but I'm a big fan of doing a federal privacy law. I think it would depend on what it looks like, you know, what are the standards and things like that. That's something Senator Cantwell and I and a few others uh, have a bill um, and I, I don't think it's the one they want, but um, I'm not going to speak for them. So they've been open to that. They've been open to talking about their algorithms um, in terms of after closing them down from researchers. Uh, Nick Clegg, I remember this because I was on after he was at one point, um, and he said, well, um, you know, we're open to having that looked at. So my issue there on the algorithms is that and I've explained this to my colleagues. Yeah, people are going to make hate comments or or misinformation. You know, individuals are going to put that online. Um, okay. But the problem with the algorithms, it then becomes to me the responsibility of the company. Because if their algorithms are reinforcing and spreading it, um, that's a problem. And I made the uh, analogy that it's like if you're in a theater and you yell and someone yells fire, that's not protected speech because it's not known as protected speech. Okay, but let's say the fi- the theater has all their exits that are safe, and so it's if there's any someone breaks an ankle or something, like is it really the theater that's liable? Yeah, probably not. But okay, what if the theater decided to broadcast it in all their multiplexes? So it created this complete stampede in every single theater. To me, that is different. They are actually their business product created a bigger problem than what it was in the first place. So that gets to our immunity issue. And I know that they don't want to mess around with that. Um, the other thing that all of the tech companies seemed con- seem concerned about is just putting some rules of the road to make sure that they're not producing their own products that they give preference to. They can produce their own products, Apple Music, um, you know, Google Maps, whatever they're doing. But how come when they have, in the case of Google, 90% of the search market, would we as a country want them to also produce the products that they give preference to over everything else? That is getting to like the AT&T world from the past where they had a monopoly over vertically, um, over all the machinery, and then horizontally over all the phone service. So Google has a monopoly, pretty much, we know this, 90%, I think that qualifies, over the search engine. But then are we also going to let them have a monopoly over everything that's under it that's advertised on there? We can let them produce. We're not saying they can't. Maybe a court would at some point say you shouldn't even be doing this. But all we're trying to do right now is say if you do it, you cannot compete unfairly against other advertisers and other companies. So to me, those kinds of things with the companies say they're open to can be very different, as you can tell, from where I think we need to go. And the last thing I think we need to do is to just do a bunch of stupid stuff that doesn't mean anything. Oh, why don't we do a study? 
You know, I mean, what what more do do we need to study? We know what the numbers are. Um, And so that's one of my obsessions is I'm tired of people doing feel good legislation uh, to say they did something on the Internet uh, when it won't make a difference. Some of my more, I'd say, aggressive ideas about doing something about mergers and making it shifting the burden. It's in the book. Um, I, you know, right now I, I've got some bills on it with the number of senators, but I don't have the kind of support I have for the rules of the road. So in the book, I lay out all these possibilities of things, um, including things about non-compete agreements and the like. Um, and then through the real life, you know, that's a little different with what you can actually get support on to move. So tell me, I think of it like this. I think of it as three major buckets of bills or legislation that we're really looking at here. One has to do with what people can say on the internet. So, you know, you should, should you be able to say X, Y, or Z thing? And a subsequent sort of factor of that is, should the company amplify it? So should we allow people- Got it. So First Amendment right to speak, right? Versus amplification. And wait a minute. And also certain categories like- uh, sex trafficking, or which we have clearly gotten involved in the Senate, not in sex trafficking. Uh, the Senate has uh, made clear that they're going to not have immunity for that or um, misinformation on vaccines. Right. Like that. So you also have types of speech um, in addition to the amplification. OK, right. so you have this first bucket, which is really complicated. And a lot of senators have gotten bogged down just in that first bucket. And they want to litigate which word is appropriate and what's not. But the amplification part of it is one that I think we're just recently beginning to talk about, which is not should we discuss what you should and shouldn't say? Or should we be discussing whether or not the company should be amplifying things that we universally agree upon as not being good for society, like sex trafficking of minors, right? I'm picking something extremely obvious, terrorism. did actually do something. But um, one other, yeah, okay, but one other thing is how they do it, right? The fact that you, as a politician, so I make a point, I do a bipartisan bill with, you know, whoever, Chuck Grassley, John Cornyn, and so that's, you know, that goes nowhere on the Internet. Let's be honest. You know, I put out, oh, but I still keep trying. OK, so how it is, is you get five times attraction if you have an angry emoji reaction versus a simple like. And so that does actually, I think, create polarized um, um repetition of content and ampli- amplification. People see the stuff that's more. I guess you could say sexy, but extreme on both sides. Okay, and, and therefore it's good for them as a business, right? So if, if free speech and amplification is the first bucket, the second bucket, if I understand it right, is the idea of just the monopoly of it all, right? Like, are these companies monopolies? What kind of antitrust behavior or what kind of antitrust laws do we need to stop just a handful of companies from cornering the market as they've done to date successfully, on the internet, which is where all of us increasingly spend our time. And then I'm just going to jump ahead a little bit to the third bucket, which I think of as sort of more the privacy element, the privacy and security element of who should be held responsible when things go wrong. And should these companies be liable? And and I'm not, Section 220, it's 230, sorry, is its own very wonky. We could spend a whole hour on that. But the responsibility issue for me is almost a third bucket. And I think when people talk about the internet companies, they tend to mix all three of those buckets together. And it sounds impossible when you're actually just talking about three separate things, three separate lanes that need to be tackled at once. Right. And they fight almost everything. So, you know, that also makes it seem very complicated to people. But the one, the lane that 
mostly we're in with antitrust is the lane about competition. And there is an argument of why it, why it can help in the other lanes, honestly, is that if you have true competition so that you don't have one company with 90% or 70% or whatever, that then that's what I meant about the bells and whistles. One of the ways you have competition is for price, but it's also for what you can get out of the product. Can you can you actually have a a real platform where you're communicating, um, where you know who you're communicating with, or you can't have fake people? Um, can you have a real platform that's protecting kids so bad stuff so they don't they they can't be on there because you know who's registered, right? that's successful and has real money behind it. So the competition issue does flow into the other stuff, um, even though I agree with you on the buckets, because, um, and the competition issue is maybe the most, it's not just the government saying, oh, hey, you have to do it this way. It's saying, let's let competition flourish by putting some road rails on. Let's listen to Adam Smith about the unbridled power of monopolies. Um, and then, um, it, there, if history is a guide, we will get more success in terms of the bells and whistles through the private sector. So ironically, after all that said, my way of doing this is arguably kind of the most market-based approach, right? Um, and yet it involves government stepping in, but it's to promote competitive markets. Um, so that's, that's the voice I'd make. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think we've been waiting to do this from the start, but talk, talk to us about your bill, because I think for people who aren't following this, your bill passed through committee um, earlier this week. And just to place it in time, we're talking about roughly the middle of January, your bill passed through committee. Can you talk a little bit more about what's actually in your bill? Mm -hmm. So um, this is a bill that looks at, as I said, the rules of the road and looks at things like, um, let's start with something easy. Okay, Amazon, uh, Wall Street Journal reporting in other places showed uh, that you actually have some of your um, business um, outlets and some of your managers or whatever they are uh, who are actually <laughs> copying people's products who advertise on your platform, like the poor guy with the luggage organizer with a few employees. And suddenly the plans are copied and it ends up in Amazon Basics. So it that to me, if anyone has to agree, this is not a good thing. And we've got to make it very clear that as a monopoly, you can't do that kind of stuff. Um, then you've got self-preferencing, which we've discussed, where you take it and you self, they're self-preferencing their own products like Google restaurant reviews over Yelp. Um, and, and then you also have a behavior where they're telling companies, okay, you guys, if you want to be rated near the top of our platform, you got to buy a bunch of our other stuff, small business. You've got to buy our distributions. You've got to do all this. So it, it's kind of getting at behaviors like that, um, that allow them um, to have a leg up uh, over other companies. And that's why I think we were able to Senator Grassley. That's appealing to him. He represents the state, the state of Iowa, uh, with a lot of small businesses. Um, although it is pretty funny. It's like everyone has an Amazon plant. That's not enough to like me. <laughs> so he, he, he has a lot of small businesses. Um, and then you have people like Senator Durbin, who's always been interested in consumer issues. Senator Graham, who's been willing uh, to take on Internet companies before, which is a whole other thing because some people just don't even want to mess with it. Um, and then you have just a vast array of different political ideologies from Maisie Hirono to Josh Hawley to Mark Warner, who really understands this 
uh, in terms of the business perspective, having been in tech before and done well in tech. Um, and so it, it uh, what I did was I put together a group that was focused on this competitive market issue. And I think, I mean, what's interesting of the people you just know, this isn't a partisan group that you put together. It's been a fairly bipartisan, and, and, and as a reporter covering this, I want to just know that it's fairly unique for there to be bipartisan support of a bill like this and for it to not fall according to party lines. Yeah, and also for it not to fall apart when the votes come, because sometimes people will just go off, and there are different views of these people, believe me. Um, but in this case, we actually gained support despite the lobbying campaign against it. And so I thought that was a tribute to people who are willing to stand up. So, you know, that's what this bill is. There's a bill coming up, as you know, Shira, on app stores. Um, and this mostly involves Apple and Google and um, the fact that companies are paying 30%, which gets filtered through to consumers um, who um, are on the app stores for Apple, for Apple phones, Google for other phones, um, and how they also are not able to advertise, hey, you can get a cheaper deal on the web if you go to our website, yet app stores have in some cases replaced the web. I now understand why some of the stores I sometimes shop on online don't have apps. I never quite, why don't they have an app? They're pretty big. Well, they've just made a business decision. They're not going to pay that much. And and yet it's really hurting them compared to other companies. So that is, that's pretty much what that bill's about. There's another one on news organizations being able to get better rates and being able to negotiate because for small newspapers, that's really hard to do. Uh, that's another one uh, that we're going to be uh, taking on uh, soon. And that, of course, involves Facebook um, and some of the other companies. So there's there's many different issues going on, including the privacy bills I mentioned um, out of uh, the Commerce Committee. These companies that you are talking about, uh, Facebook, Google, Amazon, they have some, I mean, I think Facebook alone has the largest lobbying wing in all of Washington, D.C. What sort of lobbying have they done um, to try and slow down your bill? Whenever one of my colleagues bring up an argument, I'm like, okay, let's talk about it. But who? I just want you to be think about because it it's just what this other senator said. So um, maybe someone gave you that argument that you don't even know is on the payroll. So <laughs> you need to at least ask them if they're on the payroll because they have 2,500 lobbyists um, and they have different people targeted to different members. I mean, this isn't new, right? Big companies hire, but this magnitude, uh, they've been the top in the top group of um, companies hiring lobbyists now for a number of years. So it's unprecedented in terms of um, the sustained effort and the number of people. Um, and then you have the unprecedented David and Goliath situation because I have exactly three lawyers um, working on this um, and who are outstanding, as I remind them every day. Um, and so, you know, it is it is um, an unequal situation. So um, but we just keep persevering and getting the facts and working with the other Senate offices that that care about this. So that's part of it. And it's and it's as I mentioned before, Congress does really well, usually in short term important stuff. Uh, they don't usually mess around with long term unimportant stuff, but they spend a lot of time in the quadrant of short term unimportant stuff that's in the news. And the hardest is where we are with tech. That is 
long-term important stuff because it's not right in front of them except for maybe some crises that develop like with our democracy or other things that are very apparent. But this has been long-term for a long time and I think it's increasingly becoming short-term, which is why there's much more interest in moving bills. And just to be clear, when we're talking about short-term, long-term, are we talking about the nine months left until the midterms? Is that is that what we're, I mean, for, you know, I think some people forget that we have midterms coming up this year in November. Um, and there is a lot of... I was talking about decades of short-term, but... On the on the um, front of this year, that is correct, Shira. And so we are working against a clock because in the fall, it's really hard to get anything done. Um, and so we need floor time from the two leaders in the Senate. The House, and this has been bad, we haven't mentioned the House, because David Cicilline and Ken Buck, Republican, um, and many other House members really uh, led the way on this for 18 months with their investigation um, and they also need to start moving those bills to the floor. Um, and they also have bipartisan support for their bills. And they have to, I mean, they're coordinating with us about what bills um, as we look to get floor time in the Senate. I will say two bills are already on the move. Uh, one is our Grassley and my bill, um, which has a counterpart in the House to change the merger fees and bring in over $100 million for the agencies. That's passed the Senate and is almost guaranteed to get on another bill and get through the House in the next month or two. Uh, the other one is the venue bill, which allows state attorney generals, including uh, since we're at the Commonwealth, California's attorney general has asked, been supportive of this, uh, to keep the suits in their own state when instead of allowing the tech companies to move them um, to um, and slow them down by bringing them to other venues. So that's called the kind of we call it the venue bill. And that's another bill um, uh, that is also on the move. And that's uh, Buck, Cicilline and Lee and me in the Senate. I just want to send a little reminder for people to send in their questions. We're going to start getting to those questions in roughly five minutes time. Um, but it before we do, I just want to recap. We have, you know, your bill, the House bills, which are going to be looking at the, the antitrust, the monopoly issues. I think a lot of people are still holding out hope that Section 230 gets reformed. And just to very quickly and give an oversimplification of that, it is the question of whether the tech companies should be held liable for what is on their platform. And for a long time, Section 230 has protected them, in a sense, from being held liable. Do you think it's it's realistic that we're going to be looking at Section 230 reform in the next five years, 10 years? I mean, what, what kind of timeline yes. can people think? I mean, I, I, this is one where, you know, does something, depending on what happens, is there a sudden rush to do something about it? Possibly, uh, given all this stuff that's going on. But I look at it as more that, you know, few year, I won't say five, but few year thing. And the question is, do you carve out certain areas because there's not agreement? Now, this is one where there's not agreement across the aisle, Right misinformation on one side, political stuff on the other. So is it better just to do it based on size, based on amplification, how much amplification there is um, of certain types of speech, or do you just do full out uh, immunity, it goes away for people that um, when you can show harm of some kind of falsehoods basically or something, and you do that by not punishing, say, and this is what some of the senators say to me, well, people put jerky comments on all the time. I'm like, of course they do. That happens, right? And, um, but this is about the amplification piece of it and what that means. Right. 
And, you know, I just want to note one thing I think about when I think about all these laws and how important they are right now is this idea of the metaverse that all these companies are rushing to. Facebook has obviously renamed itself as Meta. I really should be calling it. Yeah, we should have noted that just like I didn't note the house, which was bad. <laughs> um, I still have trouble remembering um, to call it to call it Meta, but you know it's not the only company. Apple, Google—they're all in a race right now to create this immersive online experience, which they want us living our lives in. And I think academics and researchers who are looking at all this say it's even more important for the legislation and the regulation to happen now, because whatever problems we have with the internet now will be that much more amplified when we are in some kind of holistic virtual reality experiment where we viscerally see and feel everything around us. Yes. I agree. It's my metaverse, my metaverse answer. <laughs> um, I'm just going to get started with some questions because I think we already have some good ones here. The first is, do you think politicians who oversee policy should be banned from investing in the same companies they're regulating? Do you see this as related to your bill? Okay, so I'm, I am not a fan of investments uh, by politicians, and there are some limits in place on the um, Stock Act, as you know, that's already in place in Congress. And, you know, I would support uh, expanding that. I'd want to look at what the legislation is. And, yeah, I don't think it's a good idea. So, I mean, I don't have investments outside of a 401k like most people have that is invested by uh, someone else. And so... Um, I just I, I think that it can lead to even though for many people it may not influence what they're doing, it can lead to the appearance of that. And I think uh, that can be a problem. Mm. And another question we've got here is what can be done about vertical integration, vertical integration, for instance, like Jeff Bezos buying The Washington Post? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, well, uh, that's what that's interesting since I did talk about that horizontal. I always remind people that's like Pepsi and Coke merging, right? Um, horizontal versus vertical, what's owned under them. Um, I think that you've got to look at the market. You've got to look at the um, businesses in the market to figure out if it's an antitrust violation. Um, and that's, you know, we have special rules when it comes to, say, TV stations, if they're in the same market. And sometimes there's waivers and the like. Um, but I think the issue for me right now, as opposed to allowing the Justice Department and the FTC to look at specific cases, is because we've been doing that a long time. We have these hearings. We throw popcorn at the CEOs, and then that's the end of it. We make news one night. Okay, everyone go home. We're not really going to do anything. Uh, I'm just tired of it. And that's why what I'm looking at is putting in some specific rules of the road. Um, I'll say this over and over again. Um, to make it uh, make it much better off in terms of allowing competitors to compete in the market. Mm. Um, another good one here. If Tim Cook spent 40 minutes on the phone with Senator Ted Cruz and couldn't convince him to vote against your bill, does this show that there is true bipartisan traction? <laughs> I don't know where to go with that one. I did think that was interesting when... Ted Cruz revealed that fact. Um, and, you know, I would, I'm very clear, like, um, I, of course, wasn't going to turn down a meeting. I want to hear from these. There's nothing wrong with that at all, that the companies are talking to us or we're talking to them. That's part of getting legislation done. Um, and you want to know what their views are and what they see as concerns. In my personal view, we not only made some changes to the House bill 
to the point where the Washington Post editorial page said, finally, uh, a tech bill that can basically, they were saying, that can advance. Um, but then after listening to um, Tim Cook and some of the other CEOs, we made some security, made very clear some security exceptions and changes. We made it very clear, which we always knew that Amazon Prime, one of the more amusing hits on the bill, uh, was not covered, but we even clarified it more that we weren't going to take Amazon Prime away from people like me. Um, and so uh, that, that was very clear. So I don't, I mean, I think in terms of the support we got for the bill, it was everyone from liberals to conservatives and people in between, honestly. Um, so that was that was very important to me. But I can't, uh, you know, I think that uh, the CEOs have a right to make their case. We should listen. We then have to respond. And so what I don't like is when people just listen and take everything they say hook, line and sinker, because then another lobbyist reinforces it that they know from home. Um, you know, that's the kind of stuff that's going on or someone that used to work at a government agency that says something. I mean, there's just a lot of things out there that get said in these meetings. And so all I ask my colleagues to do is to ask questions and then step back and look at it and come back to us, which they have been doing, and ask us to answer their questions that have been raised by the lobbyists or the CEOs. Well, but now I obviously have to ask, has Tim Cook spent 40 minutes on the phone with you and, and not just him, but have any other tech CEOs called you and tried to... Well, no, I actually, and I think this has gone public because after Ted Cruz revealed that breaking news in the hearing, um, I uh, was asked that and I had met with Sundar, the head of Google, um, actually met with him um, for over a half hour, um, and then also with Tim Cook. Yes, at different times they had they had of course uh, different issues, but I didn't ever hide that. I think that it's important, and you know it's probably good they're talking to other people in in and not just Ted. They're talking to everyone, so we know that it's my problem is that their lobbyists are amplifying things, saying things. I think there's a lot of scare tactics. And the most amusing thing is every time we make some change that we, Grassley and I, and the rest of the authors agree to is just clarify something or is necessary. Now they go, oh, see, their bill was bad. As opposed to saying, you know what, they're listening to people. Um, and then the other thing I warn them is, you know, we're not going to get to the point where this bill does nothing. So, you know, they will, I tell my colleagues, until it does nothing, they won't support it. So you've got it. You're going to have to deal with it. This is not a popularity contest with the tech CEOs. No. You're, you win the popularity contest if you don't support the bill. So just, let's just be honest about that with the CEOs. Um, do you worry that conservative federal courts will sympathize with the companies when antitrust lawsuits get filed? You know, I don't. I don't know that. I, I worry not that they. Really, it's because it's the companies um, or which companies it is, because, as we know, even during the Trump administration, Macon Delraheim, you know, he brought that case against Google and uh, Chairman Simon over at the FTC brought the case against Facebook. So there were conservatives and uh, that were actually pushing the envelope on this. But when we get to the courts, even if they may agree with them on some of this in their heads, They've created such conservative precedent in other cases uh, that it makes it very hard. Now, maybe they'll find some unique way to disagree um, or to allow a suit to proceed. And we've got some good, the Justice Department and FTC have some good facts here. But 
one of the reasons I think we need to change the law is to make it very clear to the court where Congress is and that, you know, their rulings notwithstanding, we're in a, we, the world has changed. Nearly 20% of the economy is tech or the world has changed. These pharma companies are doing really bad stuff right now when it comes to um, consumers. And uh, we're got to put some safeguards in place. That's what we do as members of Congress. So hopefully that will help because, and then the final thing I already mentioned, I just, when I go back to the original intent of these laws, I'm like, and why did you get to where you are? Because of Judge Bork's rulings, I guess. But maybe this is, if you're willing to step back, oh, here's one, Shira. If you're allegedly willing, you're now looking at Roe v. Wade, you're looking at all this precedent. Sherman Act's been around a long time. Maybe you need to uh, look at the mess that has been created within the world of antitrust. Yes. But I can't guarantee that will happen. Right. I mean, and I think whatever the courts do or don't do is uh, is left to be seen on a number of issues, not just this one. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think about shifting ownership of data from the platforms to the individuals being harvested? Governor Gavin Newsom has referred to a data dividend. Yeah, exactly. And I talked about this, I think, at South by Southwest when I was on the presidential campaign, um, and that was trying to put a tax on this or uh, because all these consumers are out there. And I think the famous favorite, my favorite monetization of how much they're earning for the companies, and I want to get this right, but I think, so this is a caveat, I'm doing it from memory, but it was something like 200 bucks a quarter or something like that, uh, that Facebook was making um, off of consumers that are their um, users in the U.S. And then when you looked at other countries that have a little more rules in place or maybe it was significantly less. And so when you look at that, and this is their own reports that we got this data, you realize, wow, they're making a lot of money off us because they have our data and then they target ads to us and they sell it to advertising. But you so greatly pointed out that business model uh, in in your guys' book. And so um, I think it's a really interesting idea. I actually proposed it at South by Southwest. Um, and, you know, um, Californians often ahead of the curve on some of these um, new laws and new approaches. And so um, I think that would be a really interesting thing to do. And you could also, of course, do it federally. Um, and there's one question here that I missed earlier, which actually is very near and dear to my heart, which is who decides what is hate speech? And why is it so tricky to answer this question? Mm-hmm. Well, you have, you know, you, what is the court standard, you know, when you see it in terms of pornography. Um, well, there have been Supreme Court rulings on on what these what this protected speech is under the First Amendment and what is not. Um, and that's I use the example of fire in a crowded theater, things inciting violence, but also things that are hate speech. And there's actually many laws on the books uh, for hate crimes, um, including uh, one that I um, had under my jurisdiction when I was the um, DA. And so um, hate speech is based on the law in the state, in the country. Um, and so one of the things that we have tried to do, Senator Warner actually led a bill on this with uh, Maisie Hirono and myself on discriminatory speech and speech, uh, violent speech and things like that, that, and why does it matter? It gets to your third bucket because then you shouldn't have immunity if you are putting that kind of stuff out on the platform for that, for whatever repercussions there are from that. Uh, so it's a 
boring legal answer to your question. Well, no, I don't think a lot of people realize how complicated the hate speech issue is and something we, we get into this in the book just to as opposed to an opinion, someone's opinion and what the line is. Yes. We we get into it a little bit in the book. We actually I think at one point had a whole chapter and we had to cut it for the sake of readability. But Germany has actually taken such a very different approach to this than the US has. And because of what happened in Germany during World War II, they actually have some of the world's yeah, much more limitations. Right. Some some really sort of um, um, strong anti-hate speech laws, which... We're much more First Amendment in our... Or how about, I was just talking to the French ambassador today um, about some of the work, well, Ukraine, but also uh, what's going on uh, in the tech world. And they've been taking a lead in France. Um, and, uh, you know, there we talked about that they just can put limits on uh, <laughs> what what was reported basically the few uh, days before an election and remember how they basically took stuff off the internet that went on. Um, and we had some of that going on with ads and, but it was so, you know, one platform did one platform did that, but their laws allow a different approach to their elections basically. And so, you know, our country has had a much different approach. So one of the things that I, that you, we have to do is deal with the existing laws and how we can make change that's still legal, you know, under our constitution and the like. And so that gets to some of the questions you had of why you so well put it into these different buckets. Uh, because a lot of the stuff I'm talking about, as much as people try to sometimes bring this up, I'm mostly in mostly on the right side, but sometimes on the left side of the aisle, that's, this is really much more straight competition policy. Right. And just so, um, just again, just to give people a bit of the history here, in Germany, you have to remove hate speech within a certain window of time. Companies like Facebook and YouTube, if they don't take it down within a certain amount of time after it's reported to them, they get penalized, they get fined. And as a result, right. companies like Twitter, YouTube, Facebook have had to put tens of thousands of employees in Germany so that they can be really responsive and take down hate speech as quickly as it appears, as opposed to here in the U.S., where they, they you know, their own rules prohibit certain types of hate speech, but they do it on their own timeline. And there are countries in the world where moderation isn't done very well. Of course, Myanmar is the country that always pops into my mind yeah. first, where it could take months, right? It could take months for a piece of hate speech. And then it spread all over the place and uh, created issues. So, exactly. So... Um, we have another question here. Is there, and then I just want to note, you have a couple minutes left to get in your questions. So if you have any last questions, please put them in the chat. Um, another one we have here is, is there anything we can do to help persuade members of Congress from California, including Democrats who get a lot of support from big tech to support your legislation? I think they might be thinking of a specific Democratic senator when they say that. Mm. Um, so um, I think you just have to make your case. I will say that, um, you know, uh, Senator Padilla made very clear at our hearing that he wanted to work with us on this going forward. They both uh, senators voted, I think, surprised some people by voting to advance the bill that I just had, um, that I just, that Senator Grassley and I had in front of the committee. Um, but of course, they've made very clear um, that they wouldn't vote necessarily vote for it on the floor. Um, you have House members as well, and I think there's difference of opinion in the big, big state of California, um, and um, um, which is basically as big as many countries or bigger. Um, you've got just different views as well in the state. And I just think it's important to keep making the case because, believe me, the companies are making the case. And we haven't really talked about this, but, you know, we don't... I, I, 
I want these companies to be successful. I'm glad they employ people, and it's not just in California. They employ people in other places as well. They've given us incredible innovations. I was going to say I wear a Fitbit, and I realized I charge it and have lost all my steps for the day. So this was actually a really sad moment for me right now at this moment, Shira, right here on the call in front of everyone. You know, I have an iPhone. I I am not some Neanderthal on tech. I use these innovations I've ordered online uh, through the pandemic. Um, I get all that. Um, but that doesn't mean that as a nation, it's one of the hallmarks of our country is that we've always rejuvenated capitalism. And when someone gets to dominate in a market, we're supposed to be stepping in and not saying, you're bad. We want to get rid of your whole ideas and your company. No, no, no. We're saying we want to make sure that's an even marketplace so we can get uh, the next Google. And we had a number of startups actually that came out um, on our side on this bill um, and made very clear why. Um, and I think that's part of it. Right. And I just want to note, I mean, early in the conversation, we talked about these tech companies essentially becoming like utilities to many Americans. I mean, people, not just here, really, but, but you know, especially in the United States, WhatsApp, Facebook Marketplace, Twitter, YouTube, all these things have become sewn into the fabric of our lives. And I don't think it's realistic that they're going to up and disappear, which is something you hear of a lot of why don't you just delete this thing? Why don't you just delete this company? And you feel it like sometimes, but you could just get off the platform if you want. But I think one of that, that, the counter to that is that's a scare tactic that the companies are using when we know very well that our bill won't do that. And we have said so many experts say this. They're basically, they may not say we're, it's going to get, they know they can't say it's going to destroy their whole company, but they say it's a destroy certain things they do that you guys love. And we just don't see it that way at all. So, and nor do a lot of other centers that have looked at this really carefully before they started to be willing to take on the biggest companies the world has ever known. Hmm. Oh, and here is one that I love. I know I have an answer for this one. Is there a favorite part or story from your book or something that got left out that you wish had made it in? Mm, let's see. Well, <laughs> there was my husband, as I note in the book, um, helped me with a lot of the footnotes. He wrote a lot of these. He wrote these footnotes um, and he has a lot of that he would have liked to remain in. I mean, we would have had like double uh, the footnotes uh, based on uh, some of the research. So I'll say that on his behalf. He's a law professor and a good writer and is a death penalty expert, actually. Um, in terms of some of my favorite stories, um, um, I, I actually, for me personally, this whole part I did about how growing up, um, I didn't really understand monopolies. I, you know, played the game Monopoly and I was so competitive. I'd like try to beat my grandma all the time. I would, you know, and the whole concept was to buy more and get bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and then um, I did not think about the history of this with my family, my grandpa and my great grandparents coming over from Slovenia um, to work in the mines. And they were basically working for the monopolists at the time, whether the mines back then in northern Minnesota were owned by the railroads, but many were owned by James J. Hill. And hilariously, when I was growing up, James J. Hill was, of course, long dead. But my mom would take us at Christmas time driving by in her little red comet, the Monopoly house of James J. Hill, built metaphorically uh, by my grandpa, since my great grandpa had come over the year he was building the house and he worked in the mines and my grandpa worked in the mines. Um, and we, the Klobuchars had literally built the house. And so I think those connections, when people can see it in their own lives, um, and my grandma with my dad growing up and his brother, she's like 
okay, we got a better place in America. Our kids can go to school, but this is the last generation working for um, uh, working for the mining monopoly right now. And now it's, you know, there's different competitors, but in her mind, she uh, was going to try something else for her kids. Hmm. I love that. Um, we have another question here. How about facilitating data portability and service interoperability? That worked well in the wireless market and should work similarly in social media, search, et cetera. Exactly. Very good question. And I know Senator Warner had a bill he'd been working on in the past that I think he's still um, focused on. I think there's a bill over in the House on this. Um, and um, he's actually um, knows a lot about this. And I, I believe that is a very good approach as well. So that's something else that the House has worked on that we could incorporate in a bill when we get to the floor. And just to, to explain to people who are listening in, data portability is the idea that you'd be able to take your data if you did want to leave the company. If you did that, that's- I was talking about the interoperability, but the, you're right. The data portability about your stuff. So if you went to another platform that you could bring it with you, that you own it, not the company. Right. I mean, I think one thing that that we were, that, you know, when I think of writing the book and Facebook and how much I knew about Facebook before I wrote it, one thing I wasn't aware of and, and, and was shocked to discover was just how much data they sit on, on individuals. And I know Google is even even more immense as far as I've been told by people who work there. I I, I question whether the average American realizes how much data these companies have amassed on people. Or how much they think is their secret stuff and they have it and how much I think people do know when it happens, like you send an email about, oh, put, turn on your air conditioning and suddenly you got air conditioner ads um, and centers have throughout hearings as have witnesses used examples uh, like that. Um, and they actually, in real time, when I'm having these hear hearings, people tweet publicly examples of what just happened to them when they were talking about the hearing. So I think people know that, but I don't think they know um, how much money they're actually making off of them and how that should be their information, their data. That money should be coming to them with some you know, normal um, profit for the company that's using the data. But instead, they're just hoarding all their data and making money off of them. And sometimes I think that's a really good approach for getting people to understand this uh, because it's hard when you just want to go buy something online and you just don't even realize what's going on and why you picked a certain product. Well, the one thing that struck me as creepy is the best word I can come up with here was that they know things about you that you might not know yourself. So they can, using their, their data on, on literally billions of data points all over, of people all over the world, they can say whether someone like you is likely to want to buy a house in the next year, have a child in the next year, get married to the person you're currently dating. And they can use this data to make really interesting and, and scarily accurate predictions about you and your life before you can. <laughs> The brave new world. So, and I mean, it's getting it's getting more and more. And it just again to step back to our real world as opposed to the metaverse. Um, it just it should make uh, the people demand some action uh, from Congress up front um, and the administration who put good people in place in these jobs now. Um, and now it's time to get some action. We have one last question here, which I think is actually the... Oh, you, you keep telling me there's more questions. This is the last one, I promise, and I actually think it's the perfect question. And it's always the best one. It's a really good one. What is your elevator pitch for Americans to support your bill? I want to tell other people about it. So do you have your 60-second elevator pitch? Uh, uh, sure. 
um, America has thrived on competition. It's what made us the envy of the world and new ideas and new products and allowing new people uh, to create new things. And right now we've got monopolies that are the gatekeepers controlling that in the dominant tech platforms. And we've got to adjust our laws uh, so that we can continue uh, rejuvenating those new ideas and allow other products uh, to get on the market. Great. Thank you so much. Our thanks to Senator Amy Klobuchar for joining us today and discussing her new book, Antitrust, coming out in paperback. We'd also like to thank our audience for watching and participating live. If you'd like to watch more programs supported or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making programming possible, please visit commonwealthclub.org slash events. I'm Shira Frankel. Thank you and stay safe and healthy. Thanks, Shira. Thank you to everyone. Bye. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.